When I grow up, I want to be a contractor because I like building stuff. I, when I grow up, I want to be a stunt double. When I grow up, I want to be an astronaut and travel to Mars. It's just over four months after the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus outbreak a pandemic and physical distancing, masks, and remote working aren't going away anytime soon. And there's no doubt working people in a wide range of industries are waiting to see what the future holds as we move through the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, everyone in the post-secondary education world is feeling the effects of the pandemic response, from employees to current students and people deciding whether now is the right time to dedicate money and energy to a college or university program. The COVID-19 pandemic created what appears to be the perfect storm for the sector. Closed campuses, challenges for international applicants, lower enrollment and less revenue, and an economic recession. But there are silver linings to some of those storm clouds. On this episode... We're exploring how the coronavirus pandemic has and will continue to affect students and the world of post-secondary education. Welcome to another COVID-19 edition of WorkShift. It's a very anxious year. No one knows quite what's going to happen. And in that sense, you know, pandemics aren't unprecedented. But this year, from an enrollment management perspective, (laughs) unprecedented unpredictability, volatility in terms of what yield is actually going to be, who's actually going to enroll, how many courses are they actually going to take. Nobody really knows, and I think the answer is different at every institution. Digital disruption. The gig economy. Artificial intelligence. Robots! And now, COVID-19. What does this all mean for you? I'm Sean McEwen. And I'm Ray Harapal. We're exploring the future of work and changes you can expect to see at your job. We'll tell you how this massive digital shift could change your career and what you can do to adapt, evolve, and thrive. We're talking to Ken Steele, a well-known consultant who monitors trends and developments shaping the future of higher education. He's the president and chief futurist at Eduvation. Colleges and universities have announced what their fall semesters will look like. They'll be largely online with on-campus options for select students when available and when it's safe. We kicked off our conversation with Ken by asking him what has surprised him the most about the pandemic responses at schools in Canada and beyond. You know, it's been an interesting process to watch, and certainly my eye's been on announcements for the fall term and how institutions are going to respond. Obviously, the spring was uh, the spring was surprising. It was remarkable to see how quickly a million students could get moved into online delivery and all of that. Uh, but but as we look at the fall term, there's a real diversity south of the border. Seventy percent of colleges and universities are saying we are going to be on campus as normal this fall. Uh, wow. The reality is they're deluding themselves, and I think they're trying very hard not to lose market share. Since we recorded this interview with Ken, new coronavirus cases spiked in parts of the U.S., and many colleges and universities have since walked back their on-campus reopening plans. Uh, Here in Canada, tuition stakes are lower, students are a bit less uh, anxious about the implications, but there's still plenty of anxiety. What's interesting is, as you say, there's some institutions like Redeemer University College in Hamilton, St. Effects in Antigonish, 
Nova Scotia, who have said, we are going to be as close to normal on campus as possible. We're going to be first and foremost on campus and we'll use online where we have to. Uh, there are a few institutions who have gone the other hard end and said, we're going to be purely online. About 80 or 90 percent of Canadian institutions have all landed on the blended or hybrid position. So it's striking that that they have so many different ways of describing what's essentially the same thing. Mm -hmm. We're going to deliver large classes online and we're going to try to bring as much onto campus as the public health authorities will allow us to do. Um, and it's striking just how different that is from the U.S. And I think as this pandemic evolves, I'm a pessimist. I believe it's going to be with us throughout 2021 and probably into 2022. We're going to see in you know, varying waves of this pandemic still. Uh, it's going to become very regionalized. So, so an institution in the far north, an institution in an isolated island in, in Atlantic Canada may be able to get away with normal on-campus instruction, while mm -hmm. big centers like Toronto, Calgary, Vancouver in particular may, may need to stay uh, locked down more often. So we're going to have that sort of wave of lockdown unlocked. Waves of lockdowns. Yikes. Obviously, this will affect how programs are delivered, and it will also affect the bottom line. Schools across the country and the continent have seen decreased enrollment numbers, and the pandemic continues to affect the overall economy. So how do colleges and universities handle this cash crunch? And what does that mean for students? The, the fundamental question is going to be how government responds to this. Because, uh, yeah, as you look at the cash crunch for higher ed, you know, yeah, sure, there were some new expenses around sanitation, around barriers, around uh, refunds of ancillary fees and so on from the spring, uh, emergency student bursaries. There's, there's a bunch of expenses. Some institutions ran out and bought 5,000 laptops to loan to students for emergency use. I mean, lots of unexpected expenses. Uh, but in particular, it's the lost income, the loss of conferences and summer camps in the summer, the risk of significant enrollment declines this fall, uh, international in particular, where if our borders stay closed, uh, stats would suggest anywhere from 20 to 60 percent of international students are not going to pursue their plans online. So, mm -hmm. so we could see a significant drop in funds for which institutions have become quite dependent. And then there's the government piece. So, so right now, the federal government is providing emergency supports to the entire economy, but not particularly to higher ed institutions. Uh, the uh, the reality is that we're, our institutions will need emergency supports to stay afloat if the worst case scenario happens around enrollment. Uh, and and governments are going to be tight. You know, however long this recession continues, their revenues from taxes will decline. Their costs for, for medical care and health care are going to rise. Uh, it, it, it is going to be very tough for, for our provinces to do anything other than cut educational budgets. So, so over the next few years, we're going to see tighter and tighter finances for the sector. I, I don't think we can avoid that. And, and I mean, that was the reality before, too. Now it's just much more so. <laughs> uh, so how's it going to affect the student experience? Gosh, uh, I, I think we're going to see more and more use of, of data, analytics, predictive algorithms, AI, online apps and tools to try to support students where we don't have the resources to put people in place. Uh, so, so we're going to try to automate more things. 
in the short term, public institutions in Canada will be leaning on private providers for rapid adoption of new tech platforms, of, of uh, online learning, and so on. Uh, in the longer run, I don't know that they'll be able to afford it. So it'll be a political question. Here's Rick Hybrex, Vice President, Strategy and Innovation at George Brown College. We asked him how George Brown will be able to invest in new tech tools to broaden the scope of program delivery amid a recession and lower enrollment rates. We're working diligently and look at every dollar spent and direct it solely to um, delivering a high and a great experience for our students in a very safe and healthy manner. That's the one and only thing that guides every decision we make, including investment decisions. We are pausing and slowing down other investments for the benefit of moving dollars to providing the greatest technology into the classrooms, the greatest technology so that our faculty uh, can teach remote and online and give them all the tools they need, but also making the right technologies available for students that could not, that may not have access to some of those technologies. We've already distributed hundreds of laptops and technology to students. We're also looking for uh, continued for support. We've received some support from the government. Uh, we've reached out to our community and to our partners. Uh, they have contributed to the support for our, our students. We're going to lean heavily and collaborate closely with our partners because we know that these are unprecedented times and only when we work together, both within the college as well as with our community around us, Will we get through this and will we deliver an amazing experience and ultimately come out of this better and stronger with more amazing tools that will continue to enhance what our students get uh, when they come to George Brown? It's the question lots of students are asking. If most learning will happen online this fall, why aren't they getting a tuition decrease? It's a fair question, and probably if my kids were in college, I would have questioned the same. Being though uh, within the college system, um, I recognize that we are not online education institutions. So the shift from analog and in-classroom and campus-based to online is a, is a costly one. Um, we still have our facilities. We still have our staff. We still have our services. Now they'll all need to be converted and transformed and were into online matters. So by just flipping a switch and say, now you can consume this online, we still uh, have an infrastructure, if you will, that was designed for an on-campus delivery. So at this point, um, nobody, and us included, are really saving any money for delivering online. As a matter of fact, we're actually spending more uh, on the technology, on the infrastructure, on training of our faculty so that they can deliver better uh, remote experiences. Um, and I suspect that will last uh, a while longer as we convert not only our our institution, but the whole system, if you will, into a much more agile, uh, hybrid online and, and digital uh, learning infrastructure. Employers have been saying for years they really want graduates with strong, soft skills, like problem solving, communication, teamwork, work ethic. Some call them people skills. If we're delivering programs online, how can students develop these skills? Here's Ken Steele. Uh, a lot of international students are coming to Canada specifically to develop linguistic skills, social skills, and to sort of get uh, that full experience. And, and by moving 
as we have to an online delivery or to a primarily online delivery, there's no question we're losing some of that. Uh, I've talked to faculty members over the years who don't know how how these kids today are going to function out in the workplace uh, if they if they don't have etiquette and social skills and so on, uh, if they're not comfortable talking face to face and if it all is, you know, texting into their phones and social media. At the moment, uh, most people's employment hinges on them being able to function texting into phones, social media and and participating in web calls. So there's a way in which uh, we can prepare them right now for the current reality uh, using these tools, I think. But uh, there's no question we're losing a lot of that interactivity uh, between students, between students and faculty. Uh, the random serendipitous conversations that can happen on a campus. There's a there's a a lot of um, a lot of serendipity that's lost, and a lot of the extracurricular is lost. Uh, and and while institutions are trying to figure out ways to sort of artificially construct them, you can you can create discussion boards to stand in for student clubs. You can you can try to um, create coffee coffee hours, use 10,000 coffees and create kind of social matching. You can create cohorts and mentorship partners and e-buddies and things. You can you can try to create some social connection, but it ultimately is it's always going to be scheduled. You know, it, it nothing happens unless you plan it. And uh, and that that's an artificiality that is not really sustainable. And here's Rick Hybrex. Yeah, I think certain uh, things, as we talked about, as human skills may have amplified. Um, no matter where I think uh, workers are going, there will be the requirement or the necessity to be more agile, to be able to work from home, to be able to work uh, in remote teams. And in some professions, we may not have thought that to be that essential or that critical, and I think the last three months have demonstrated to us that it is. So I think uh, maybe learning in a remote um, online manner actually will provide additional skills and uh, additional experiences that will prepare us even better for what the future of work is going to look like. George Brown will roll out a new program this fall. The Interprofessional Complex and Long-Term Care Program is fully online. That was the intention when it was developed pre-COVID-19. Good timing. Rick says it could serve as a model for other programs. It not only focuses on an essential set of skills and, and jobs that we really need in this difficult time, but it's also a program, the Interprofessional Complex Long-Term Care Program. It's also one that is designed to be online and that is designed to incorporate online gaming and simulation features and functionalities to offer a very rich experience to our students without necessarily having to come to campus. It's also a short program. Uh, it's only two semesters so that uh, people in the profession can upgrade and upskill and get these necessary skills. And I think that we're gonna see a lot more of that uh, in, in a time after markets kind of uh, collapse or, or become smaller uh, and we have more uh, unemployment or people that need to now upgrade and upskill to remain relevant in a rapidly changing uh, workforce. So we will see more and more uh, rolling out of online simulated remote programming. We also realize, though, that 
many of our programs require or depend on a hands-on component. So we're actively working with our faculty and our staff to look at how to digitize and reimagine some of those hands-on components. And as soon as it's safely allowed and possible, we will be opening up our campus again, particularly to support students in those programs. As schools continue to develop online and hybrid pandemic programming, how do they win over new students? Here's Ken Steele. Price sensitivity will be up because of the the recession. Uh, The mobility will be down. Students will either stay put and study at the local option, hoping for some on campus, or they will go for top tier brands. I think much of what's happening right now in terms of recruitment is behind the scenes. So, So there's a ton of energy going into what's called conversion, making sure that applicants actually do register this fall. So so uh, one-on-one conversations, video conferencing, orientation programming, onboarding, all, all sorts of energies going on there. We're not seeing ad campaigns really uh, from institutions right now, this sort of broad Uh, mass media marketing and so on. International is going to be a massive hit no matter what we do. Estimates are 20 to 50 percent of international students are going to defer if they can't actually come here. Mm. It's a very anxious year. No one knows quite what's going to happen. And pandemics aren't unprecedented. But this year, from an enrollment management perspective, (laughs) unprecedented unpredictability, volatility in terms of what yield is actually going to be, who's actually going to enroll, how many courses are they actually going to take. Nobody really knows. And I think the answer is different at every institution. Here's Rick outlining why college is the way to go. Sure, we need more PhDs and masters, but um, every time we need to rebuild the nation, uh, we need people that do. uh, People in the essential roles. Look at, frankly, all the roles that were tagged as essential in the last three months, many of them for which you come to college. I mean, this is the heart and the engine of our economy. So I think college is the best choice. Second, um, although I can appreciate sending a child to college, not knowing how often they'll be on campus and what experience exactly that they're going to have, I actually think our youth is a lot more Uh, resilient to learn in an environment like this. Uh, And as I appreciate, by the way, this is not for everybody. And some people are struggling in this kind of online learning world. But as we mentioned earlier around the new set of skills, I think this is the way of the future in whatever job or career we pursue. So having to take a semester or two or part of your education in an online learning mode, personally, I don't think should stop or stall your education progress uh, for your children. They say every cloud has a silver lining. Ken says the pandemic helped speed up a few positive long-term trends. We've seen growing interest in the scholarship of teaching and learning, growing interest in uh, pedagogy, in looking at how we better improve learning outcomes, at student success, at how do we monitor students, identify those at risk, proactively reach out with supports, get them through... All of that stuff has been simmering for two decades. Uh, I think we're going to start realizing that lecture is a waste of time when we get people in a room together, that that time together is going to be precious on campus. And we're going to start realizing we want to use this for really interactive, really active learning, really experiential, hands-on stuff, uh, and move lectures online. 
you know, that's been a trend that's been happening for some time, a realization that active learning has twice the learning outcomes of passive lecture. And uh, this accelerates that trend. Everyone's going to have a couple more arrows in their quiver when it comes to teaching now. So, so in that sense, I think we're going to see um, big improvements in teaching and learning. And here's Rick Hybrex. It is good to see that the vision for 2030, we just created as an institution with the help of all of our employees and our partners, uh, I believe uh, still holds. And as a matter of fact, maybe COVID-19 has demonstrated that the things we painted for the the future we painted for us uh, are maybe now more realistic and more needed and maybe more urgent than ever before. So I hope that we don't let, as they say, a good crisis go to waste and actually learn from this experience and continue to push for the right balance between online, simulated, digital and virtual and experiential learning. I think we have an opportunity and I would want to argue we wanted to get there anyways, but now it just accelerated to think about the marriage of technology and hands-on uh, in-person learning to see how we can enrich the experience. Um, and the point you made uh, earlier around the interprofessional complex long-term care program, which is online, we're already seeing and we're already making investments in shorter, uh, more essential, relevant online learning uh, that will complement and augment the amazing kind of hands-on and on-campus experiences that we have uh, come to deliver for the last 50 plus years. So I like to think that maybe we do look different when things all become slowly normal again, and that we are armed with a newfound energy and innovation to maybe more rapidly reimagine how to deliver quality education to the hands of students that may be all over the place, not necessarily on campus or in Toronto, Uh, but that we look for different ways to scale um, the educational experience that we have been uh, known for. It's time to take a look at the future want ads. Yes, kids, listen up, because these could be the jobs you'll be applying for when you grow up. In this segment, we ask our guests to outline a job they think should exist in the future. Okay, Ken, what have you got for us? The best the best answer I can come up with for a future job in higher education is something that's been called a learning engineer. Cool. What will they do? You could argue that those already exist in some ways. We have curriculum developers. We have uh, learning technology specialists and so on. But but this idea of learning engineers who are trained in in all of those areas, curriculum, authentic assessment, teaching and learning approaches, who would work with instructors and faculty, librarians, and and maybe some software tools and AI tutors, whatever, to sort of optimize the learning experience. What kind of education or experience would be required for this job? I think if the if you want a support person to work with faculty, especially at universities where there's a very rigid hierarchy, they mm-hmm. probably need to have a master's or PhD. It doesn't matter a lot what it's in, but it's probably in education or in some kind of information technology. Uh, Harvard's grad school of education already has a, a master's in technology, innovation and education. 
T-I-E, which is sort of where this terminology around learning engineers is starting to get discussed. So, so my guess would be that kind of a background would prepare people to, to come in and assist the subject matter experts who are the faculty with with optimizing the courses. And, and particularly if we're trying to accommodate students with a whole range of accessibility needs and uh, and varying degrees of, of equity in terms of their backgrounds and their resources, uh, we're gonna need to we're gonna need to put real conscious thought into designing courses and programs to to create the best learning outcomes we can. That's a wrap on this episode of WorkShift. What did you think? Want to share your thoughts on this episode? Email us at workshift at georgebrown.ca. This podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at George Brown College. We want to thank Ken Steele and Rick Hybrex for sharing their thoughts with us today. It's the end of your work shift. Thanks for listening.